Cuba, what is going on in Cuba? The mainstream media is staying pretty quiet uh, on what's going on over there. We know that there have been internet outages. We know that we waited a long time before we got anything out of the White House uh, and certainly some mixed messages about what was the uh, root cause of the protests we're seeing there. Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to our guest for today, who's not only uh, an expert on Cuba, but he was born there and forced to escape with his uh, family at the age of seven. Uh, so he understands that uh, that country extremely well. He experienced it firsthand. And uh, he'll give us some history and perspective on the current situation in Cuba. I'd like to welcome to the show, Amberto. Fontava, Fantova, I keep messing that up, right? Uh, Cuban political analyst, author of six books, three of them on Cuba, including the most recent, The Longest Romance, the mainstream media, and Fidel Castro. Umberto is also a columnist at Town Hall, Newsmax, Front Page Magazine, and other publications. Welcome to the show, Umberto. Thanks a lot for the invitation, Amiga. Great to be here. Sure. Um, obviously, you have such a unique perspective. Um, you know, you're, you're probably watching Cuba with uh, much more, um, you know, scrutiny about the government, about what's going on, about the people's wants and needs and why they're out on the street. What's your bird's eye view for those who may not understand it the, the way that you do? What's your bird's eye view of the situation? What they've got to keep in mind is that the regime, a lot of the same people running Cuba today, were basically the same people who were running it in the early 1960s. We're talking about a regime that jailed and tortured political prisoners at a higher rate, at a very similar rate, to Stalin's regime during the Great Terror. You know, I'm talking per capita. Obviously, Stalin had a lot more people to torture and jail. Cuba only had a population of 6.5 million in 1960, at one time in Cuba, one of every 17 Cubans was a political prisoner in the early 60s. So that's a higher rate than even Stalin during the Great Terror. The regime basically running Cuba today, they murdered more political prisoners in their first three years in power than Hitler's regime murdered in its first Six, And that's an absolute numbers. And they drove out 20% of the Cuban population. Now, some of our listeners are going uh, and viewers are going, well, so what? I'm Everybody always tries to leave Latin America and get into the U.S. What the heck's difference? What makes you guys any different? Well, here's a little datum that you don't hear a lot about from the media. Prior to Castroism, Cuba took in more immigrants as a population, as a percentage population, than did the United States, and that includes the Ellis Island years. At the time of Castro's revolution in 1959, and many of these were from the first world, mm -hmm. the Cuban embassy in Rome, Rome, Italy, folks, this is a first world country, had a backlog of 20,000 applicants, Italians clamoring to move to Cuba. And this was at a time when Cubans could leave Cuba at will, you know, leave and come back. It was not a totalitarian government in any way, shape, or form. They could take all their property to come. And at that time, more Americans lived in Cuba than Cubans 
lived in the U.S. Since that time, 10 to 20 times as many people have died trying to flee Cuba, eaten alive by sharks, dehydration, drowned, than died trying to escape East Germany. That's really all you need to know about Cuba, really. Prior to Castro, one of the highest rates of immigration in the world, people clamoring. After Castro, 20 thousand people die as East Germany. So you well, we could probably close this podcast right now. <laughs> well, I actually, I you know, we've established the first thing. I actually yeah. I want to build upon this, um, and that that first uh, what's been established is that you um, that there is this regime, and that there are these horrific numbers, and the statistics and data uh, speaks for itself. Uh, but currently, the current protests. You know, from a scale of one to ten, how significant are the current protests? Because we've seen protests before, and we know that the people have this disenchantment. You know, it's very similar to what we are seeing in Iran. Each time the people get out onto the streets, we ask ourselves, how you know, how important is this particular episode in the scheme of the sixty years of history that that you're talking about from from the sixties till now? So, you know, what wh- how important is this? How can we fit it into the timeline of history for Cuba? The popular protest, or probably the biggest popular protest the regime has ever faced, probably since the early 60s. But there's a major difference. The people protesting now don't have any guns. In 1961, 62, Raul Castro, who was head of Cuba's military at the time, admitted that they were up against 179 different groups of what they called bandits. In other words, they were anti-communist guerrillas. In other words, they were what's called nowadays insurgents battling against the Soviet satrapy of the Castro regime. That was in the early 70s. But those rebels had their arms cut off by the U.S. as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. See, a lot of people don't realize what actually got the missiles out of Cuba. Kennedy cut a deal with Khrushchev saying, you get the missiles out of Cuba, and we will promise, not only the U.S. will promise not to invade or molest the Castro regime, but we will make sure that no other power in the Western Hemisphere molests the Castro regime. So in a word, and I know all y'all are hearing all the time is, gosh, Cuba stood up to those Yankee bullies for 60 years. You really got to hand it to the David against the Goliath of the North. Complete poppycock. Since 1962, October of 62, the U.S. has protected the Castro regime. It was written into what they called the Kennedy-Khrushchev Pact that got the missiles out of Cuba. So right now, yeah, there are more people protesting, but they don't have any guns. And the regime, this is something you're not hearing about in the mainstream media, but it's being reported in the Spanish language media in Miami. Six major military and security figures in Cuba, five of them generals, have mysteriously died in the last week. So there is a purge, a typically Mm -hmm. Stalinist purge going on in Cuba right now among the regime. 
amongst the regime. They are, they, they are killing the ones, um, in my estimation, that were seen as too weak. In other words, the response against the processes was two weeks. Six different military figures have wow. disappeared in Cuba. And you all can Google this up after this if you don't believe yes, it. I've, uh, yes, I yes. I've seen the story and we actually reported on it at the foreign desk. Uh, it was in our morning email uh, earlier this week. Um, you know, everything you say, it's heart wrenching. It, it truly is, um, you know, obviously for the sake of, of human rights and for, you know, the, the people are, are, are on the streets chanting freedom. They're, they're waving American flags and obviously it, it pulls at, at, at our heartstrings in, in a certain capacity. But with regards to foreign policy, I mean, if you had the ear of those sitting at the White House or in Washington, D.C., who are the opinion and uh, the influencers and the opinion shapers, um, why should we care about Cuba? No, as a matter of fact, they're doing the exact opposite of what should be done. They're, again, in typical Democrat Party fashion, helping the regime. In other words, you're talking about reallowing remittances from the U.S. to Cuba via the official channels, something that President Trump cut out a couple of years ago, I think one of the last acts, maybe the last year of his administration. Why? Because the regime, in one form or another, sucks off 74% of every dollar sent to Cuba in remittances. It is isn't help to the regime. President Trump had a lot of Cuban Americans on his team who advised him, people who had lived communism, had studied the communist regime, and they knew how Castro regime games the system, games the U.S. system any way they can. And they were telling them, look, all those remittances, they'll make a big show in the media and their agents influence and the U.S. will say, oh gosh, this will help Cuba's families. We need the people in South Florida, primarily in other places, to be able to send remittances via Western Union to Cuba to help their families. Gosh, it's a, to help the children. In fact, the regime was scamming 74% and they will do it again and it looks like it's going to happen again. Um, I, you know, after and I want to President read... Trump cut it out. After President Trump cut it out, he knew what shenanigans, but it looks like Biden administration is going to reintroduce that scandalous procedure. You know, um, I want to I wanted to go forward and, and read a tweet from from um, someone at the State Department with regards, you know, confirming everything that, that you're saying just really echoes that lack of care and lack of of uh, acknowledgement of what the people in Cuba are going through. But I want to stop and ask you, you know, we know what shouldn't be done. And I, I couldn't agree with you more with regards to getting the people the help and really cutting out this regime. It's very, again, very parallel because we cover Iran on this show a lot and uh, very, very, very parallel to that situation where you can't trust the regime and you just have to go directly to the people. But what would be your formula prescription as to how to solve this? I mean, how, how could the Biden administration or any administration really help the people of Cuba in a significant way? Given your background, you remember how they got rid of Soleimani. What was his name? Am I yeah, Qasem Soleimani. You remember how they got him? Mm -hmm. This isn't my idea, but I'm seconding it. It's being proposed by a lot of uh, Cuban exiles. And I know all it will take, it won't take boots on the ground. It will take a couple of armed drones hitting some key targets in Havana. End 
of immediate problem. Of course, other problems would ensue. Mm -hmm. And to talk about the people who will say, our, our, some of our viewers and listeners will go, oh, good grief, Roberto. Heavens, Betsy, we're going to get caught in another. Again, I mentioned, nobody's talking boots on the grounds. And let me give you a couple of quotes. We put Castro into power. There's no other way to put it. That was the U.S. ambassador to Cuba from 1957 to 59, Earl T. Smith. We are responsible for it. Let me give you another quote. We owe the Cuban people a debt so great that we could never repay it, even if a forthcoming administration wanted to. That's E. Howard Hunt, the CIA man who is in charge of the political division of the CIA and of the Bay of Pigs liberation bump from 60 to 62. So we put Castro there, and here's another official that says, we all want that. Well, that, that could be paid very, very easily. Two drones, I guess. Back, well, to that point, um, how deep is the support of the regime? I mean, if these drones were to hypothetically, you know, target a handful of those at the top, uh, you know, how, how deep is their support within society or within the military, within the police force, without, within, you know, the, the upper echelons of society? You know, it's so hard to say this, just like it was in the Soviet Union. But you remember there was a documentary, and I forget the name of it, after uh, the East German government fell that had a... Uh, it was about the, the Stasi, the secret police, and they determined that about, you know, 30% of the East German population were actually secret, <laughs> secret police, either informers or members themselves. I think it's probably about the same in Cuba. You know, you've got so many people uh, linked to the regime, typically in police services. I've always said, you know, you, you can't do it just like you couldn't do it with Hitler. You know, after Hitler fell, oh, I wasn't a Nazi. Oh, no, 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 no. Heaven forbid. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. We were a Nazi. And, and you saw the same thing in the Soviet Union and so forth. But there's really more. It's not two or three percent. It's probably more like 20, 25 percent in all totalitarian regimes that are linked to the regime one way or the other. And I would say that's probably a good estimate in Cuba. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another thing that, that contributed to the people coming out onto the streets, as we're seeing in many parts of the world, was the COVID pandemic, meaning um, it wasn't the it wasn't the main reason. I mean, obviously, these disenchantments, you know, exist. And then uh, we always say people don't dream about, you know, liberty and freedom and go out onto the streets. They have to actually be hungry and jobless. And then that's what forces them out onto the streets for those ideals of liberty and freedom, right? And in the case of Cuba, um, you know, COVID obviously played a role there, but not entirely. Obviously their calls are, are much broader than just Cuba, but um, it seems like some people in Washington DC took advantage of this to really just dismiss um, the gravitas of, of these protests. Uh, there's a tweet from the uh, State Department that said this is basically just about COVID. Julie Chung, the acting assistant secretary, uh, said peaceful protests are growing in Cuba as the Cuban people exercise their right to peaceful assembly to express concern about rising COVID cases and deaths and medicine shortage. We commend the numerous efforts of the Cuban people mobilizing donations to help neighbors. So again, that's the State Department's acting assistant secretary for the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. She should have a better handle on what the situation is in Cuba. She should have a better handle on the recent history of Cuba, just 60 years. 
Why are they denying what's going on here? No, it, it, it's, an, it's an old look. Ever since 1960, every single Democratic candidate for the U.S. presidency has been endorsed by the Castro regime. It started during Kennedy. Castro said, this is, quote, this is in an article I wrote for townhall.com, if our viewers would like to see it, this week. He said, we better hope Kennedy wins this election, because if Nixon wins, our revolution won't last. Well, he was vindicated 50 times over with the Bay of Pigs and a missile crisis. But in other words, the Democratic Party has always been, and there's a quote from James Burnham in his famous book, Suicide of the West, from 1964. He says, the liberal cannot strike forcefully and wholeheartedly at the communist for fear of wounding himself in the process. They believed in too many of the same things, you see, for a liberal to go out and crush. And you'll notice, though, that's why they, they kind of beat around the bush. Oh, really, it, it, it's the COVID issue. It's the fact that we can't set remittances. No, folks, the people on the streets were crying down with communism. They were saying down with the dictatorship. They were screaming Diaz Canel, who is the, the, the hand puppet that the Castro's put up, they were saying Diaz Canel Singao, who, who translates into American into MFR. You know, that's what they're saying. This isn't a COVID. I mean, COVID obviously contributed to it. Obviously. But wait a minute. Then you ask yourself, well, wait a minute. Haven't we been hearing for 50 years, and especially for the last 10 years, about the wonderful free health care that Cubans enjoy? Mm. Oh, as a matter of fact, go back just two weeks ago, the media, see, all the ones with Havana bureaus, especially, that's the ones that you really have to be leery of. And they all have Havana bureaus except for Fox. They were screaming about, oh, the Castro regime invented a COVID vaccine that's better than any of ours. And a few years ago, they'll come out, cancer, Castro regime invented a cancer vaccine. And they invented a meningitis. Totally, totally, totally bogus, folks. When you see a report coming out of Cuba by CNN, by MSNBC, ABC, all of those people, in other words, when you see reporting from Havana, start laughing at it right now because these people got their Havana bureaus for a reason. First of all, they were vetted very carefully beforehand, the reporters. And then after they get to Cuba, they are tailed. They are mm -hmm. monitored. There's a Spanish, yeah. Spanish, uh, actual reporter who took his job seriously that reported on that. It says you're tailed all the time. Of course, he was thrown out of Cuba because he took his job seriously. But CNN, MSNBC and so forth, mm -hmm. they're really a mouthpiece for the regime. I mean, there's only one way. They'll skirt it and they'll say a few things. But when it comes down to reporting something that will actually hurt the regime in the heart, they're not going to do it because they'll get booted out of Cuba. It's not rocket science. Right. No, we say the same thing about uh, the publications that have bureaus in Tehran. It's it's a, it's quite a, a parallel uh, situation with with the uh, you know the the difference being Islamism versus uh, socialism. Um, you know what's what's interesting about the the, the liberal 
um, voice in this country is that while they are in denial about what's going on in Cuba and denial about that, the fact that it's over communism, that it's not the utopia that they are painting it out to be and driving this country in that direction, um, they refuse to close the southern border, even though we're about to shut down again with COVID. Um, we have to wear masks, but you know, people who are unvetted and and potentially, um, you know, infected and clustering together in the thousands are are coming across this the border of this country at at, at uh, numbers that we haven't seen before. Uh, and you know, there's there's no stop to it. There's no even suggestion to uh, to to try to tame that. But when it comes to Cuba and people coming over from Cuba escaping this crisis, this is what our lawmakers had to say. Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. The time is never right to attempt migration by sea. To those who risk their lives doing so, this risk is not worth taking. Again, I repeat, do not risk your life attempting to enter the United States illegally. You will not come to the United States. What do you make of that? Always say, especially uh, Latin Americans, Democrats, I say, well, you know, it's a shame that Cubans get special treatment. They get favoritism when they come to the U.S. because they're allowed to automatically gain asylum and apply. You know, it is true. We are being treated differently. By the way, that asylum policy, what they call the wet foot, dry foot policy, where if you landed on U.S. shores, you were accepted and you can apply. But if you were caught, interrupted on your voyage by the Coast Guard and so forth, you were sent back to Cuba. That was signed by President Clinton in 94, and it lasted up until 2015 when President Obama cut his deal with the Castro regime. They did away with it. So there is absolutely no special treatment for Cubans any different from uh, El Salvador. But now there is, as we just saw. And it's really galling to hear that from a Cuban immigrant himself, Mallorcas, who was born in Cuba. It's really galling to hear from him. But now there is special treatment, especially unfavorable, because they will not be allowed. And a lot of people saying, you've got to realize, refugees from socialism and communism embarrass Democrats, mm -hmm. embarrass. We can go down the line, and I've written several articles, and that's really the theme of all my books. All of the Democrats, all of the liberals, all the celebrities who for 50 years have been singing the praises of Castro's revolution. And I'm not talking fringe Democrats. We all probably know about Bernie Sanders, right? Yeah, Cuba educated. We know about Sanders. We know about AOC. But folks, Castro is a true egalitarian and he wants best, what's best for the Cuban people. We greeted each other as old friends. That's not Bernie Sanders. That's not AOC. That's, That's Jimmy Carter. Democratic president of the United States, Democratic president. Everywhere we were in Cuba, we were surrounded by smiling, laughing children. Mm. Del Castro is very shy. I like him and consider him a friend. That's George McGovern, 
presidential candidate of the U.S. for the U.S. from the Democrat Party. And I could go down the line. These are why, though, um, Umberto, Umberto, why? Why this love affair? This kinship. Well, it is because of the BS that they've been fed. Of course, they start, you know, people, uh, Democrats and liberals, they start with a bias towards socialist regimes. And then the Cuba was the coolest of all, because, hey, man, when these guys came down from the hills in 1959, with the long hair and the beard, you had Fidel Castro, man. They were the first beatniks. You had Fidel Castro, man. He looked like Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead, man. And Raul Castro had a ponytail, baby. He had a blonde ponytail, short length hair. Man, he looked like Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. Che Guevara. Che Guevara, take away that wispy beard. Looked like Jim Morrison of the Doors, man. So these are the cool beatnik guys. And people saw a difference. You know, the Soviet regime by that time, by the late 50s, you know, they had these old, fat, dumpy guys in ill-fitting suits. Mm -hmm. And in the you had a bald golfer as president, you know, Eisenhower, boo-boo. But man, in Cuba, you had these guys in their early 30s with beards and long hair. These guys are cool. And that stigma, give you an idea, Fidel Castro in April of 1959, Fidel Castro spoke at Harvard University on the same bill as beat poet Allen Ginsberg because it seemed perfectly natural, perfectly congruent. Hey, man, two cool beatniks, daddy-o. No matter how much they murdered, and I told you about the murder and torture rate, and yet we're talking about a regime, the beatnik regime, the cool guys, who jailed and tortured the longest-suffering female black and gay political prisoners in the modern history of the Western Hemisphere. We're talking about the only regime in the history of the Western Hemisphere to herd gays into forced labor camps for the crime of being gay or appearing to be gay. We're talking about the only regime. Everybody wears a Che Guevara shirt, you know, and they, hey man, didn't he play at Woodstock? Wow, no. The regime Che Guevara and Fidel Castro co-founded is the only regime in the modern history of the Western history to outlaw rock music and herd rock music fans into forced labor camps. But that, what I've just told you, doesn't seep into the mass culture. You know, my right. books are out there, but let's face it, since you've got CNN, Embassy reporting from Cuba, what I just told you just right. doesn't make it. Right. I was just going to ask, you know, what's to what extent is the role of the media? Uh, as you said, it, they're embarrassed by the by the facts on the ground. Right. So, um, you know, this fake news uh, about Cuba and whitewashing the crimes of the regime there. Um, you know, to what extent is it shaping the conversation and how can we break free? It's responsible for the whole thing. Like I say, I'll hold it up again, but, but it's the longest romance. I call it the longest romance because it started in 1957. Which, you know, you can say in 57, nobody really knew what Castro was going to do. Some people did. And they were warning the State Department and the CIA about it. But the State Department and the CIA were both helping Fidel Castro and Che Guevara at the time. So nobody knew. So you could say, oh, he's wonderful. He's going to be Robin Hood. He's helped to hear. 
But for goodness sakes, people, six years later, and that's because the Castro regime made it a point to cultivate the media. As a matter of fact, Che Guevara in his very diaries said, more important to us than rural recruits for our guerrilla army were U.S. media recruits to export our propaganda. He wrote that in 1959. And it is as true, perhaps more true now than it was in 1958. They have made a special, special effort and a great one to cultivate the U.S. media. Castro awarded a medal, and there's a picture of this. People can Google this up if they put my name in it. Awarding a medal to New York Times reporter Herbert Matthews. He's awarding the medals. And in the ceremony, he says, to our friend, the New York Times and Herbert Matthews, without your help, our revolution would have never happened. Hmm. And again, that's still the case. All the news that comes out of Cuba is being filtered, being filtered. That's why, you know, I run across into conservatives. You know, you see it all the time. And, and, to, and the, it's so ignorant that the thing really hit ahead with me during the Elian Gonzalez tragedy years ago. It dawned on me, most Americans have no idea right. what life in Cuba is like. They think this is a custody dispute like takes place, you know, with their neighbors down the block in Peoria in Cincinnati. No, mm -hmm. this is a totalitarian system, folks. And it dawned on me how little. And the more I studied, I said, well, the only way to address this problem is to write an entire book about how Castro has manipulated the U.S. media and the Democrat Party. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating to me that these um, these you know the, the updates the, the the news that does come out of Cuba, for example, when the U.S. diplomats came back with the ear damage, um, and and then you know we heard that there's going to be um, investigations into this mystery, and you know it, it's it's almost as if these are inconvenient truths where they don't want any evidence against, you know, their, their love affair, as you said, of, of 60 years. Um, so what will it take to really, I mean, if they are the Democrats that they, they say they are tolerant and pro, you know, humanitarian rights and, you know, trying to, to be always for the people, then why are they always on the wrong side when it comes to these conflicts? Again, i I'm putting Iran and, and Cuba, um, uh, you know, parallel to one another because they're both going through the same thing right now with people on the streets asking for the U.S.'s help because they know that's what it's going to take. Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, real clear politics. Uh, last week, they came out with a study that was perfect proof. I didn't do the study. It was about them. They proved because I said I've done several of these shows and I say, look. The people with Havana bureaus, you're not going to get the truth out there. If you get anything out of Cuba, you're not, you know, you're going to get all oh, the protesting about COVID and everything, just like you said. Well, real clear politics did a study on the media coverage of Cuba the last two weeks. And the most reporting and the most accurate reporting, in my opinion, comes out from Fox. Why? Precisely because they do not have a Havana bureau. CNN and MSNBC and the other ones who had mentioned the study went back for the last decade. CNN and MNC had reported on Cuba the most over the last decade. I mean, daily, everything that happens, everything that would happen in Cuba, you know, what's Castro eating today? Da, da, da. 
all of a sudden, the last few weeks, boop, the coverage did this and Foxes went this. So I don't know what better proof you need than that. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, when they have the uh, bureaus in Havana, we know that it's coming through a, a, a very filtered mm-hmm. lens. Um, just the fact that they're there tells us you know, how they're going to be reporting and how they were forced to report about the situation. Um, but there may be something that will push the Democrats' hand. And um, speaking of CNN, this is an article that was in CNN, uh, I believe today or yesterday. Um, it said Trump's inroads with Florida's Latinos are influencing democratic response to Cuba. So uh, leave it to CNN to point out that, hey, we should do something about uh, Cuba because we're going to lose Florida again. And perhaps it is the Cuban vote that, um, you know, that that helped Trump definitely the first time and perhaps the second time why he won Florida. Uh, what's the role of, of Florida's Cuban and Latin American uh, population? And how, how can they do more to push the hand here? It's vital. It's vital. As a matter of fact, if you remember, those of us who follow this, but during the campaign, during the last presidential campaign, Biden on the stump several times says, oh, no, we're going to go back to Obama's Cuba policy. We're going to scrap Trump's He says that about Cuba everything. He said, he said that about everything. We don't really have a policy. You know, all he said was see, you know, Obama era. And that was it. Right. That was it. But, but he was saying this in Florida. In Florida, two two Cuban American audiences, Venezuelans, would say, "No, I'm going to go back to the Obama policy of engaging with the Castro regime." What Trump is doing, said, "Well, you know something that was during the election." And then when they, I think, when they saw how badly they were hammered by, especially Cuban Americans, it's hard to find an exit poll, and you're not going to get to it. But the exit polls, because Cubans are not even a majority of Hispanics in Miami-Dade anymore. So, so, But the exit polls that I've seen that actually polled Cuban-Americans showed that Cuban-Americans voted for uh, voted for the Republican ticket 72%. 72 to 30-something percent. That's the highest rate of any, eth- not only of any ethnic group in the U.S. that voted for Trump, it's higher than, you know, Southern whites, as they're called, which is, you know, most people think of as, as the most loyally Trump uh, block. Well, Cubans voted higher than they did. And I think when the Democrats saw that, well, guess what? Biden, up until we started the show, he might have changed, said, <laughs> you know, he said, he, all of a sudden he says, well, Cuba isn't a priority for us. We're, and he basically he has left most this, of Trump's policy in place. Is this voting record perhaps one of the reasons why the Cubans aren't invited to come into the United States right now. Of course it is. They know, hey, you, you the people coming in from the Texas border, you know how they're going to register and they know how they're going to vote. The people coming in trying to come in on rafts, half dead, half star from Florida, they're also going to vote, but it's going to probably be the Republican as history shows, the last 60 years shows. I mean, it's just something, when you listen to Castro's media, when, when you grew up in Cuba, you, you're hearing so many of the same things, some of the catchphrases, so many of the same bylines from Cuba's media as you hear from CNN and from Democrats. And you hear so many of the same sound bites, like from AOC, 
as you heard in Cuba's media. You know, you you get here, you have just an inborn revulsion to that kind of stuff. Right. Right, right. And that, you know, that experience, their perspective should, you know, should should speak to something here. Something has to change when you don't listen to the people and you don't connect with, again, uh, draw the parallel to the Iran, the Cuban people and people who really have had this taste of persecution and now look to the United States as you guys have everything. What are you talking about? And they, they it's, it's really a disconnect. But last question. Um, you know, putting politics and partisan politics, I should say, aside, you know, how are, and it might not be during the Biden years, but we're looking to, you know, the, the next administration, the current administration, the next decade or so, um, how, you know, what would be your advice to anyone listening who could be in the position to make a difference for Cuba? What will it take besides those uh, few drone hits? I mean, let's talk about a, a way to make this not partisan, but American foreign policy. It used to be that we had certain things that we were unwavering on as Americans, like our support for Israel, which is also wavering right now, our support for human rights, our support for what is right and wrong. Um, you know, it should be much more clear than it currently is. But how can we get on the same page regarding Cuba? How can we get these statistics and the facts that you outline to the White House and to the ears and eyes of those who are in charge to make these opinions, uh, to make these decisions? rather a cynical answer but sadly a true one is that just what you were talking about about the voting patterns when they see it's going to hurt them you know when it comes time to vote in south florida i mean honestly the reaction to this even across the united states has kind of surprised me because i'm thinking my goodness you know americans have to be tired of overseas you know nation building and stuff well that's a, that's another strange thing you know we go and try to nation build in afghanistan for goodness sake, a tribal a primitive tribal society cuba was already pre-built as I mentioned, more Americans used to live in Cuba than Cubans used to live in here. Cuba had a high in 1958. Cuba had a higher standard of living and lower infant mortality than half of Europe. You know, but I think the the threat that the Democrats are going to hemorrhage even more voters in Florida in the vital swing state. I think this is the one thing that caused the Biden administration to come out with even the lukewarm commentary that it has in support of the protesters. But I think when they, when it finally hits them, they said, you know, we're not going to get any Cuban American votes or, or Venezuelan or the other people, you know, then right. they're going to go, right. we, we're going to have to do something. You know, I think that it's cynical, but that's the way it works. Right. And I think people want a much more honest uh, and uh, genuine response when they need it. Right. So when the people in Cuba are asking us for their help, Let's give it to them. Let's understand more. I, I encourage you to, to get your hands on uh, at least one of the three books uh, that Umberto has written on Cuba. You can learn a world of information um, and particularly, you know, in light of how our media is covering this, get the real information uh, from sources like Umberto. Cuba is not just a place where you have 
good cigars and 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 uh, colorful uh, classic cars. They they there's a true sad reality behind uh, how the people are living there, and I encourage you all to read more about it. And uh, we will do our best to continue coverage here at the Foreign Desk as well. Thank you, Umberto, for joining us today. This was very very informative, and um, you can find Umberto on social media. You can follow us uh, by subscribing to our podcast. You can go to YouTube.com/slash Lisa Daftari. It's also available where you get your podcasts. Uh, Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, etc. And if you want to sign up for our daily top 10 email, it goes out every weekday, Monday through Friday. Uh, you can go to foreigndesknews.com and you can sign up there. Thank you so much and see you all next week.